Let's say we have a cancer patient. We look at their tumor and we find that there are some immune cells that are finding their way into the tumor and are, are sort of successfully attacking the cancer. We can now sequence the genome of those immune cells. We actually can learn what is it that they are targeting. So immune cell like a B cell, each of them makes, makes like a different antibody essentially that binds to different things and that, that is genetically encoded. So we can read that out. So we can read out what antibody is an immune cell, a B cell making itself its way into a tumor. We can immediately take that sequence and turn it into mRNA and put it back into that patient to amplify the response. Welcome to the Curiosity Podcast, where we go deep on a wide variety of technical topics with the smartest leaders in the world. I'm Imad Akun, the co-founder and CEO of Mercury. And I'm Raj Suri. I'm the co-founder of Lima, Presto and Lyft. And today we're talking to Hanu, who is the founder and CEO, I believe, of Elix Nano. He is a, a kind of a biotech savant. Elix Nano is focused on mRNA, and this guy seems to know everything there is to know about mRNA and its past, its present, its future. And he's working on some really interesting applications of this groundbreaking technology. Imad, what are you interested to talk to Anu about? Anu is super thoughtful. I think the interesting thing about Helix Nano is they're not just thinking about one application of mRNA, they're really thinking about it as a platform. So he's really gone deep and trying to think about how can you apply this to lab-grown meat and cancers and how did the COVID-19 vaccines work. So he's just got this broad kind of set of thinking around it. And he can also tie it back to how will this affect our lives and uh, the social aspect, which I think makes it not just like biology, but really brings it to life. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's also a science fiction writer. You know, he actually thinks about like how biotech can affect our lives. And, uh, you know, he had some really interesting comments on like bioweapons and things like that, which I never thought about before. So really fascinating conversation and also just learned a lot about the science. I mean, the thing is with mRNA, I thought was uh, like, you know, we all kind of like, oh, yeah, this technology came out to deliver the COVID vaccine, but we've all kind of moved on with our lives. But the technology yeah. just gets better and better, and like there's going to be a lot more impact because of this technology, and he makes a great case for that. Yeah, it really actually made me think about the hype cycle of things, right? Like there's like there was this crazy mRNA hype cycle, but actually it's from 1978, and you know these companies are already like decades old. Yeah, the next time something happens, like you know maybe breast cancer is cured, or, or they have, have a preventative vaccine for it, everyone will be like, oh, of course mRNA, and then there'll be another hype cycle about it, but. It's great that people are like continuously working on this in the background and we, we get to be the benefactors every 10 years or so of these breakthroughs. Yeah, I mean, it's really compelling when he calls like, mRNA the transistor of, the, of like biology, basically, right? Oh, yeah. These guys have raised 60 million, right? So he's obviously a great storyteller on like how the company is, can be hugely impactful. Absolutely. With that, well, let's welcome Anu. Welcome, Anu. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, we wanted to kick off with how did you go from mathematics to building an mRNA biotech company? 
it's maybe useful to start by explaining how why I got into mathematics or, or mathematical physics. And that really, I think, has a lot to do with growing up in a small town in the north of Finland, where winters are cold and long and very dark. But that does mean that when you walk home from school, you, you see a spectacular night sky full of stars. So I became an early space and sci-fi enthusiast. I really, really wanted to, to explore the universe and build spaceships. And that led me to study physics. What then pulled me fully in was this mystery of why does mathematics actually describe reality? So all our models of physics are, are really mathematical theories where often some very abstract branch of mathematics that has been developed completely independently turns out to be relevant for describing reality, like differential geometry for, for general relativity, so gravitation, or theory of Hilbert spaces, or group theory for, for quantum mechanics. So I fell in love with that mystery, which we, which still, I think, remains, remains a very deep mystery about the universe. And I ended up doing a PhD in string theory, which is, of course, an attempt to build a unified theory of all fundamental forces, including gravity, which is something we have been unable to do so far. And there's, there's other attempts to do, do that, too. And there's sort of experimental window for string theory is sort of closing pretty rapidly. But it's a, but it's a beautiful theory and kind of unifies a lot of beautiful ideas. But it also doesn't, didn't immediately lead to building faster than life, flight spaceships. So, so I got a little frustrated with it. Together with another similarly disillusioned string theorist, uh, Sam Halliday, we started a previous company, which was essentially a consultancy solving problems in mathematics for industry. So applied mathematics company. And we built a team of about 10 PhDs, mathematicians, theoretical physicists to, to work with us, and then engaged with all kinds of clients, typically with some sort of hard engineering problem, ranging from thermal modeling for satellites for European Space Agency, to reservoir modeling for oil and gas, video compression algorithms for drones, for aerospace and defense, and kind of more speculative work around uh, social network analysis, early explainable AI work, even quantum computing for the UK Ministry of Defense, and actually also life sciences. So we did do some work on optimizing Funnily enough, delivery of drugs into so-called Langerhans cells under the skin, which which actually have a lot of a lot of relevance to vaccines, which I obviously ended up working on working on later. But the biology was sort of a theme in the sense that it represents these complex systems that we don't really have the tools to understand well in the same way that we have very fundamental mathematical theories in physics. So that already had some pull. There is this history or tradition almost of people coming from physics and mathematics going into biology. There's the RNA Thai Club, which was this group of scientists in the 60s who really solved the genetic code, essentially. Like, what is the code for the instructions that RNA in the cell provides uh, to the cell, the cell to make proteins? That club included a lot of physicists who had been also involved in the Manhattan Project, like, like Leo Szilard and George Gamow, a famous cosmologist. So, so there is like, uh, president for being naturally inclined to go from physics to biology. But for me, actually, the reasons were also also quite personal. That consultancy business ended up not working out really well. I think the issue that we came up against was not having a lot of confidence in our, ourselves with Sam as business leaders coming straight from academia. So we brought on board an external CEO, and that person was quite effective, but also insisted on bringing their life partner on board as a board director. With a big equity stake, they essentially took over the company, or we sort of got involved in a conflict over over the direction of the company. It became very it became a very toxic environment. I still hate checking email because I have email apnea, so I get shortness of breath from checking email. That sort of dates back to that period. So, in the end, we basically walked away from the company. I then started to think about what to do next, and my mom 
had just been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. So she had had primary breast tumor 11 years previously, and that had been operated or resected. Then it came back and metastasized to, to her bones. That obviously was, was quite a dark, dark time and a dark, dark moment. And she eventually did not, did not make it. Uh, but it did make me reflect deeply on the nature of biology. And then as I sort of looked more, more into cutting-edge cancer therapies, it also became clear that there was this ongoing explosion of capabilities in both reading and writing DNA, where you sort of had these Moore's law-like curves, sometimes called Carlson curves, after Rob Carlson, who sort of pl- first plotted and analyzed them, of exponential reductions in the cost of the reading, reading a base pair of DNA or writing a base pair of DNA. So, so it really felt very clear that if you project these trends forward, something really incredible is going to happen and it's going to fundamentally change not only medicine, but really like what being human actually means. And then there were some other early signals that that sort of showed glimpses of what that future might be. And like one little gateway drug or, or a trigger for me actually was, I spent time in, in Silicon Valley first, first in a place called Singularity University. And through there I met this Israeli scientist called Ida Bachelet, who had built little DNA nanorobots. So DNA can actually be used not only as a recipe for making proteins, but for as a construction material. So there's this whole field called DNA origami, where DNA structures are, are sort of folded into, into different geometric shapes, and they can be then assembled to, to do functional things. So, so Ido had built little nanorobots, these very simple mechanical devices out of DNA origami, so like boxes that can contain drugs that open when they encounter a certain kind of molecule. And this just blew my mind. That whole technological direction has not really panned out yet, at least as, as a useful set of tools, but just as a demonstration of what was possible, that's just to me indicated that the future was going to be spectacularly weird and it was going to be defined, that, that, that the kind of almost like Eric Drexler style nanotechnology was actually closer than I had imagined, and it, it was really biology. So I decided to fully jump into biology. It had that sort of same feel that I had gotten from this deep connection between mathematics and physics, that there was this whole new universe that had evolved through billions of years, full of wonder and complexity, and something that we were now learning to talk to and find tools from and, and repurpose. One thing beautiful about physics is that it can be like modeled with mathematics and the mapping seems fairly strong, whereas like, at least my impression of biology is that it's way messier. There isn't clear like mathematical modeling and determinism. Maybe is mathematics like a good way of modeling biology? And at least at the micro level, you guys do? There will undoubtedly be mathematical principles that will be applicable to biology. I think our expectations should be different, though, than from physics, because we are talking about these complex emergent phenomena. But I think we will, maybe with the help of AI, understand the principles of emergence and how how these complex structures emerge from simpler structures. There is some interesting work already in that direction. Called, uh, for example, I think my, my kind of favorite example is there's an MIT scientist called Jeremy England, who has been working on non-equilibrium thermodynamics to try to build essentially toy models of, of life. He has noticed, for example, that this emergence of biological structures like, like cells, etc., can actually be explained if you define this quantity of dissipation, like maximizing how much energy that system dissipates. And, and actually self-replication emerges very naturally from that. So he primarily works with very, very simplified 
models of like-to-like systems and biological molecules. But I think fundamentally it is, it is going to be possible. Now, there's also some very clear, not necessarily mathematical, but there are also like clear organizing principles that exist in biology. One really important one is that biology is an informational field. Cells are information processing systems, and, and like our immune system, for example, is, is, is an information processing system. So we can look at and manipulate the information flow in that system. We can also intervene in it without fully understanding it. We can at least poke at it and, and perturb it. That's where the power of mRNA lies, actually, that it, it is the natural layer where to intervene in that information flow. These cells and or like, you know, these molecules being information processing systems, is it possible to write really good simulations of how all these different systems interact and be able to predict accurately how these different you know, systems will act in different situations? Not so far. I mean, I think the complexity of an individual cell is, is really quite, quite staggering. I mean, you have many, many thousands of different kinds of proteins, each of which is like a complex nanomachine in its own right, with millions of copies of them all crowded together in this bioreactor mess which then obviously interacts with its environment and other cells constantly as well. So some progress is being made. There's this nice quote from Demis Hassabis from DeepMind, founder of DeepMind, around drawing a parallel between physics and mathematics and then biology and AI. You know, I think machine learning does provide us with a natural way of approximating very complex nonlinear systems if we can generate a lot of data about them. I'll need to check the exact reference, but I think the most impressive thing in the kind of whole cell simulation direction I've seen is a deep learning model of a yeast cell, like a single yeast cell that does seem to be able to, at least to some extent, predict gene expression patterns in an individual yeast cell. What's the gap then? I mean, it's obviously complex, but we have amazing computing power at this point. Is it that we don't have an accurate model for how these things react or, you know, because it does surprise me at this, you know, at this stage, where we're able to do things like LLMs, like we can't predict biological interactions as well. So there's certainly been like amazing advances in terms of protein structure modeling, but I think the dynamics is still very challenging. We can kind of predict the static 3D shape of a protein, but then actually the sort of how it changes dynamically, even for an individual protein, is very, very challenging. And I think that, I mean, it might be that we need quantum computers. It is ultimately a quantum mechanical problem. What is the landscape of dynamics of, of a protein molecule or, or another kind of biological molecule look like. And that's where I think we run up against the limits of classical computers. Classical simulation of quantum systems becomes exponentially, exponentially hard with size. So to flip it around, the system itself simulates itself rather than sort of trying to necessarily fully build simulations of cells or other biological systems. I think we just should also just develop better ways of interrogating them, getting data from the actual systems themselves, because this is actually why drug discovery is so hard or has traditionally been so hard. If you look at the cost and failure rate of drug development, so for cancer drugs from the sort of first phase one, safety, first safety study to approval, the success rate is 5% and it costs a billion dollars of that order of magnitude. So clearly we're doing something wrong. And I think one of the fundamental things we are doing wrong is that we don't have very good predictive models. In cancer, like the most successful therapies are the ones that engage the immune system to go after cancer. Mouse immune systems and human immune systems are not the same. There are sort of tumor organoid models where you take part of the patient's tumor and, and culture it with human immune cells, but then you don't have a functional immune system that actually develops and learns a new response. Computationally, we have also 
not at all yet bridged that gap because of all the sort of scaling issues we just talked about. To predict like an immunotherapy efficacy, it's not that you need to model one cell, which we cannot do, but you, you need to model a system of billions of interacting immune cells and you know pathways between them. And then the cancer itself, where you have something as complex as cancer is our own cells. So, so it has sort of, sort of that, that full genetic complexity that we have. So there's some humility there that I think we need to have around like how much can we simulate. But the system itself simulates. Mm-hmm. So I think if we can gather more data from the system, which we now can with both high-throughput DNA sequencing and other new high-throughput assays, we can generate large data sets that we can exploit. And then if there's a natural way to perturb the system, like with mRNA, I think we can close the loop. And then Demis Hassabi's point, given the feedback loop, we can then have a AI design layer that sort of help, helps us actually actually sort of steer the system in the right direction. So, so it might be also more like a real-time control problem rather than fully sort of modeling the system. So using the outputs of the system, using the information we get to train the inputs, understand you know, the system better, understand that black box, similar to AI, yeah. Yeah, but to make that sort of not abstract, here is something that mRNA makes possible now. This hasn't really been done, but it's possible. So let's say we have a cancer patient, we look at their tumor, and we find that there are some immune cells that are finding their way into the tumor and are are sort of successfully attacking the cancer. We can now sequence the genome of those immune cells. We actually can learn what is it that they are targeting. So immune cell, like a B cell, each of them makes makes like a different antibody, essentially, that binds to different things, and that, that is genetically encoded. So we can read that out. So we can read out what antibody is an immune cell, a B cell, making itself its way into a tumor. We can immediately take that sequence and turn it into mRNA and put it back into that patient to amplify that response. So to amplify their own existing response. Their immune system has already figured out what is the right kind of response. It's maybe just not powerful enough. So you can amplify that. And then you can also put that into another patient. Another version version of this is, which is sort of more clinically later stage now, is the idea of personalized vaccines. This may have some fundamental problems as an approach, but like what is clinically being done now, not yet approved as a, as a therapy, but companies like Moderna and BioNTech are taking individual patients' tumors, sequencing them and identifying mutations that are unique to those cancer cells, and then making vaccines in an attempt to target those mutations. These haven't yet moved sort of the clinical needle massively because often it is actually one problem with cancer cells is that they are our own own cells. So it's hard to generate immune responses against them. And also like specific individual mutations, cancers can usually evolve around. These kinds of feedback loops are now possible. In the case of like these personalized so-called neoantigen vaccines, there is already a machine learning step. The sort of in the process of deploying these therapies, machine learning models are being used to predict like which ones of these mutations might actually be visible to the immune system and sort of displayed on the surface surface of the, the cancer cells so that the immune system can attack them. Maybe this is a good point to talk about what does Helix Nano do? How long have you been working on it and what was the idea and the evolution and what does it do now? So basically the earlier origin story really came directly from my excitement around biology. I sort of wanted to find some key critical problem to solve, solve in biology. And actually the original idea 
had to do with being able to record what happened inside an individual cell and using DNA as sort of information storage for that. So, so kind of a crazy idea. Now, actually, quite a lot of work in that area, but that was a good enough idea for a business plan competition around 2015. The business plan competition was organized by Johnson and Johnson, and the winners basically were given J and J support and also lab space at the J and J campus in Belgium, Janssen Pharmaceutica. Ended up spending a year at Janssen working on this idea with a couple of scientists, but also talking to everyone involved in the drug discovery process. So that was a big part of my biology education of just trying to understand what was happening and trying to identify where some of the critical bottlenecks there were. And what very quickly emerged was that, like, sure enough, it is now possible to print genes and make synthetic DNA and design DNA constructs. But how do you actually get them to do something useful in the body? Getting them to actually then work in the body was sort of a big challenge. And I made a connection with the Dresden University scientist who, who had come from George Church's lab at, at Harvard Medical School. So George Church, of course, is these sort of titanic figures in, in the field of synthetic biology, whose lab has invented both key DNA sequencing and DNA synthesis technologies, was very early involved in CRISPR and many other things now also operating very much in this sort of biology AI, AI intersection. So the Dresden scientist introduced me to Nikolai Eroshenko, who's now my co-founder and, and the CSO of Felix Nano. And Together with George and Sri Kusuri, Nikolai co-invented essentially some of the core modern high-throughput DNA synthesis technologies, how to, how to use inkjet printers to, to make smaller strands of DNA that could then be stitched together for actual genes. So his work went into a company called Gen9 that Ginkgo Bioworks bought, and then Nikolai stayed on at the church lab to try to figure out how to engineer the next generation CRISPR-like CRISPR -like systems, but also came up against this problem of how to deliver them, how to get them into the body. And that's where we sort of found, found a meeting, meeting of minds and concluded that there's sort of a finite space of solutions. It's maybe like worth just unpacking a little bit of like what happens in a cell, what is the information flow, flow that we talked about. And our DNA, our genome, is where the information is sort of more permanently stored. So it's the recipe book for all the proteins. Proteins really do everything, but the recipes for the proteins are stored in DNA. When a cell needs to make a protein, it makes a temporary copy of the recipe from the DNA into mRNA. DNA is the ROM and RNA is the RAM. The program gets loaded into memory. And RNA is sort of less permanent chemically. It's more transient. It's less stable chemically than DNA. And that's why it is on purpose. The cell doesn't want to make every single protein permanently all the time, but only when it needs them. And then the RNA carries the information to the protein factories of the cell, the molecular machines that actually then make proteins. And they're, they're called ribosomes. And they are actually very much like 3D printers. They read through the, the mRNA and then one amino acid by amino acid, the building blocks of the proteins, they assemble the protein. And then the protein folds into, into its final 3D shape or can also be dynamic shape that then goes and carries out its function, whether it's construction material or signaling or enzyme or something else. But that is the information flow. So DNA, RNA, protein. That's called the central dogma of, of molecular biology. And this RNA is called mRNA, right? There's other kinds of RNAs, but the type of RNA that carries the information to make protein is called messenger RNAs or mRNA. mRNA. We were initially more interested in DNA. So could we just like get synthetic DNA more efficiently into the cells more directly? And that's why the company is called Helix Nano. Helix is the DNA helix. So one way to get DNA into cells, which is used a lot with gene therapy, is with viruses. So you make a synthetic virus, 
and you load the DNA in and infect the, the patient with the virus. And it's a non-replicating virus. You've removed all the parts that help it replicate. So you're just sort of leveraging the parts of the virus that help the virus get into the cells. And this kind of works. Like there's a the class of viruses called AAVs or adeno-associated viruses. And there's many, many, many gene therapies in clinical development using that technology. But we sort of discarded that approach pretty much immediately because it has fundamental limitations. First one is you get an immune response because you're putting the DNA into a viral vehicle, a virus. Your immune system, once it's been exposed to that virus once, recognizes it. And now you can't treat the patient again. So what happens here is the virus doesn't necessarily integrate the DNA permanently into your genome. It just puts like an extra bit of DNA into the nucleus that sort of floats alongside your own genome and, and then RNA gets made and protein gets made from it. So it does work. But that can also then get flushed out eventually. And then you can't redose because now you have an immune response against the virus. Incidentally, this is kind of an issue also with some of the viral vector vaccines that were used in COVID vaccines, like the, the adenoviral, adenoviral vaccines like J&J and AstraZeneca. The other problem is that viruses have a limited DNA payload capacity, so you can only put in so much DNA and it's quite small. So we thought viruses were out. We just wanted to go fully synthetic. And we found a way to make these minimal DNA vectors, like basically just take synthetic DNA generated using some of these technologies that Nikolai invented, put little loops at the end to make it more stable so that it doesn't unravel. And then the question is, how do you get it into the cell? And then more importantly, how do you get it into the nucleus in the cell where DNA needs to be to work? And we realized actually that there was a way to solve that nuclear import problem of nuclear entry problem. There's various proteins that have signals that tell the cell to get them into the nucleus because there are proteins that need to go to the nucleus to do stuff like unwind DNA or make mRNA. So we thought we would piggyback on that pathway. We designed a protein that had a portion that grabbed the DNA and then another portion that told the cell to take this, this whole thing into the nucleus. And that actually worked. It enhanced our ability to get DNA into the nucleus. But then the problem was we didn't want to actually separately make that protein. Because this is sort of, again, like one of these assumptions that I've maybe had here in the background that's useful to unpack. Making proteins is hard. The first biotech revolution going back to the late 70s and Genentech and so on, the realization was that you can take a human gene and put it into other organisms and have other organisms make human proteins, so insulin or other biologic drugs. But the problem is that every protein is different. So to do, go through that process, you'll basically say, have to go think, okay, like in what kind of cell line should I do this? Is it Chinese hamster ovarian cells? Is it yeast? Is it some other cell type? Where can I actually make this protein? Or what cell type can make this protein for me? And then the question is, okay, now it's sort of working. Can I purify the protein? Can I isolate enough of it with high enough quality? Does it sort of clump? Does it do something weird that I need to deal with? And now it's six months later and you still haven't made your, made your protein. To scale that, that's a billion dollar exercise also. We did not want to do that. I mean, that's kind of one of the coolest things to keep in mind about like working with DNA and RNA, that, that this is about turning your own cells into these protein factories and having them do what they do naturally to make these proteins right there where they're needed. So to go back to our sort of two-stage rocket system for getting DNA into the nucleus, we then realized that, okay, like RNA doesn't need to get into the nucleus. RNA just needs to get into the cell. So what if we have RNA make our helper protein and we put both DNA and RNA in simultaneously, and that, that sort of helps get the DNA into the nucleus. And that also worked. But then looking at our controls where we just use the RNA, 
the expression levels were so high that he actually felt like we didn't need the DNA at all. And then that's kind of going back to this information flow in the cell. The RNA layer is special. So RNA is not permanent, unlike DNA. It has the same designed freedom. So you can have the cell make any protein you want, not just any human protein. Like this is one of those sort of also galaxy brain moments. Our cells can make any protein that can exist if given the right information. Not just the 20,000 human proteins, but it's the, I don't know what the number is, like 10 to the power of 1300 or some, some like absurdly ridiculous number of like, what is the, what is the number of possible proteins? Our cells can make all of them if they're given the recipe. And RNA is the most direct way to give them that recipe. And this was like late 2017, early 2018. We were fully in on mRNA. It became like a very defining belief for Helix Nano that mRNA was going to be the transistor of biotech. It was going to be the layer on which everything else would get built. This would be the place where we interface with human biology. That's kind of how we ended up with mRNA. And then the next question was, okay, like if mRNA is the thing, why aren't we there already? Like what, what are the fundamental problems in the field? What sort of has prevented mRNA from taking off, given that this is, this is sort of a fairly obvious, obvious observation that this is the right layer. And actually, historically, the first experiments with synthetic mRNA expressing a protein in human cells go back to 1978. This is not a new idea, but it did take a long time for the field to take off because the problem is that if we're trying to do this man-in-the-middle attack on the cell by putting in mRNA from the outside, this is also what viruses do. So viruses try to play exactly the same trick to hijack our protein-making factories to make more copies of themselves. So the cells themselves, not just sort of our adaptive immune system, but actually our cells themselves have ancient sensors that have evolved to detect RNA that looks viral. If we make mRNA the same way the cell makes it outside the body and put it in, above a certain dose or a certain dosing frequency, these sensors inside the cell, these alarm bells, warning the cell that it's been infected are going to be triggered. And then what the cell does, the cell shuts down its protein factories. It doesn't want to make more virus. And, but that also means that your mRNA payload does not get made. And then furthermore, it alerts all the nearby cells. It sends out inflammatory signals to all the nearby cells. That effect can also become systemic. So, so if you had a COVID mRNA vaccine, some of the local side effects, some of the local inflammation actually come from this, this effect. So the reason we have COVID vaccines and the reason the mRNA field exists is basically Katalin Kariko, Andrew Wiseman, who just got the Nobel Prize in medicine for this. The really interesting observation that Kariko made was, why does our own mRNA not trigger these antiviral sensors? If our cell is making mRNA all the time, why doesn't that mRNA set off all the same alarms? Like, how, how can our cells even possibly work? So what she realized was that after the cell makes mRNA, it adds various chemical decorations to it to mark it as self, as something that is actually us. And she found a way to duplicate those chemical modifications synthetically and to make mRNA that was actually chemically modified in a way that made it look less like a virus and more like our own RNA. When did she discover that? 2015. What is that method called? So chemically modified nucleotides. So RNA, like DNA, is made out of these four base pairs or four letters. So DNA is A, C, G, and T. RNA is A, C, G, and U. And the specific modification that she initially discovered with Weizmann 
It's called pseudouridine. So you take the U and you add a chemical group to it to make it make it look slightly, slightly different. That was kind of the firing shot for the field. Didn't Moderna start before 2015, though? Or is that around when it started? There's a pretty direct line from this discovery. Maybe I'm thinking the key publication was 2015, but the work was out there earlier. What happened was there was another scientist called Derek Rossi, whose lab was working on stem cells. So he was trying to figure out how to turn normal cells into stem cells to, to make induced pluripotent stem cells. This is, of course, the discovery of Shiro Yamanaka. There are these Yamanaka factors, which are genes that if you turn them on, you can restore cells to a stem cell-like state. So Rossi realized that mRNA was a really good way to deliver these Yamanaka factors. But then he couldn't make it work with normal mRNA. And I forget now the name of the scientist who did this in his lab, but they realized that using these carico modifications, that actually worked. So Rossi then realized that this had a lot of potential, that really chemically modified mRNA could transform the stem cell field. And I believe you had Bob Langer on the podcast recently. Yeah. Rossi then went to Bob Langer to say, there's something interesting here. And Langer realized that, no, no, this is much bigger than just stem cells. This can be applied to anything. And then Bob went to Nobar Afeyan flagship pioneering, and that's how Moderna got started. But the discovery was, and the, actually the IP did come from Carico and Weizmann. So the pseudouridine, which was the original Carico and Weizmann discovery, turns out that's less useful if your mRNA manufacturing quality improves. But there is a derivative of that called N1-methylpseudouridine, which is now the gold standard of the field, which he also discovered. And I think Moderna did discover that independently, but Carico filed her IP first. So both Moderna and BioNTech, the other sort of big mRNA company who collaborated with Pfizer on, on the COVID vaccines, licensed n one methylpseudouridine from UPenn and, and Carico. And there's like a story there also around how Carico was treated by UPenn. Like she was actually in the process of doing her own startup to, to develop mRNA therapeutics, but UPenn decided to take the IP back and then license it to Moderna and, and, and BioNTech. So she's somewhat redeemed now by the Nobel Prize. But that is kind of the origin story of the modern, modern version of the mRNA field. It is really all about how to make mRNA look less like a virus. We kind of also realized that even though n one methylpseudouridine enables uh, higher doses and more frequent doses than unmodified mRNA, sort of natural looking mRNA, it's still not perfect. If you exceed a certain dose threshold, even with n one modified mRNA or certain dosing frequency, you still trigger these antiviral sensors. That fact you can see more or less directly from the pipelines of Moderna and BioNTech. They are kind of focused on mRNA applications where you don't need to dose that frequently or the individual doses don't have to be that high. So that includes various types of vaccines. It includes like single dose immunotherapies. It includes like some very low low dose requiring enzyme replacement therapies for rare genetic diseases. So the limitations of technology are sort of built in to the kinds of things they're doing. So, so one of the core ideas behind Helix Nano is we are, are sort of constantly pushing the envelope of what is possible with mRNA. We want to turn mRNA into this almost like an external genome, like an exogenome for us to store outside the body and incorporate into our bodies whenever it's needed. And big part of that is making larger and larger and more frequent mRNA doses possible. One core breakthrough we made is a novel chemistry that is analogous to the Carico discovery, but actually modifying two of the mRNA letters simultaneously, specifically C and U simultaneously. And we're finding that lets us go at least nine times higher than what is possible with, with N-methylpseudouridine sort of, and to expand the, the space of possible mRNA applications. So that includes things like 
ultra-potent vaccines, but also turning potent biologic drugs into mRNA. Are you actually kind of building your own vaccines and other things? Yes. Okay, you're not like selling this kind of IP slash methodology. Again, this is like a transistor level mRNA technology. It is so broadly applicable that we are not going to be able to capture all the value ourselves, nor should we. We are also currently in a number of collaborations where we will license that technology to others for other, other applications that we're pursuing ourselves. But we are certainly building our own vaccines and therapeutics. Where we are aiming to go, the massive opportunity we see right now, which is sort of uniquely possible with, with mRNA, has to do with closing that loop that we talked about, going from DNA sequence, information that we can read from DNA to a drug or a therapeutic. And one setting where we think this is going to be incredibly powerful is preventative cancer vaccines, or like a very, very early stage treatment cancer vaccines, but effectively preventative cancer vaccines. Because the other set of technologies that has been advancing incredibly rapidly on the back of DNA sequencing that has followed these Moore's law-like curves, you know, like going from hundreds of millions per human genome to $100 per human genome in the space of 20 years. One area leveraging that are liquid biopsies. What that means is you can take a blood sample and little bits of DNA in that blood sample can be amplified and sequenced to detect any signs of early development of cancer. So precancerous cells and cancer cells in your body are shedding these DNA sequences into your bloodstream. And we now have the technology to detect them and then predict whether you might be developing cancer or not. You know, there are companies like Grail, many others who are working on this, but what's actually missing is an intervention. Let's say, you know, assay readout says, you have X percent chance of, of developing pancreatic cancer or colorectal cancer in like the next five years. You're not going to go on radiation or chemo at that point. You might not have any detectable tumors, but, but you have cancerous or precancerous cells in your body. And your immune system theoretically knows how to deal with them. It just needs a little bit of information. And in the form of mRNA vaccines, we now have a way of giving that to you. But to really enable that, we do need more potent mRNA vaccines that have been possible in the past. And in this case, it would have to be personalized per individual, or there will be like classes of vaccines you can develop? They would very likely to be classes. So there would be some common patterns that would recur. In, in fact, that's kind of borne out by some studies that are coming out. So they are like common pathways that get activated in early cancer development that are broader that you could target. So it might not have to be like uniquely personalized, but you could have sort of a library of things that you, you mix and match for a given individual. Where's the furthest along we are today in the state of that technology for developing a, sort of a cancer vaccine? So there are a lot of therapeutic cancer vaccines in development, both mRNA cancer vaccines and others, where you are sort of trying to essentially amplify a cancer patient's response against an existing tumor. So those are, those are sort of in, in late stage clinical trials currently. And there is some promise. Modern has seen a response at least reducing the rate of recurrence for metastatic melanoma. BioNTech has seen extended survival in pancreatic cancer, which is really one of the most lethal cancers. So there is promise there. The challenge, though, is still the response rates. So the response rates are quite low. What do you mean by response rates? So how many patients actually have their tumor shrink? So it works, but it only works for a small percentage of people. Correct. What percentage are we talking about? It's highly variable between different cancer types and trials, but it is like between 10 and 50, but probably more on the lower lower end. And still in like low, small scale, right? None of these are hundreds or sort of around a thousand patients. Patients, I think, is now the phase three trial that Modern and Merck are doing. So promising, but there's still some work to do. This is still also the first generation mRNA technologies. Like I think 
there's at least three layers at which these things can be improved. The amount of vaccine you can deliver, how strongly can you engage the immune system with that vaccine, and then what are you sort of targeting the right things, things in the cancer. So I think there's sort of an order of magnitude gains to be to made in each of those areas. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you also mentioned on your website that looking at targeting climate change, how is mRNA going to have impact on climate change? I actually can't talk about that too much. There are at least two different applications. I can talk about one of them. One area that I think will have, have a big impact on climate change is food. So reducing the carbon footprint of, of food, where you know a lot of people are excited about cultured meat. So actually growing meat in the lab, growing meat in bioreactors rather than sort of slaughtering animals. And the cattle industry obviously has a massive both carbon footprint and land and water use footprint and so on. But the challenge has been scale. One big issue with cultured meat is that there are these certain components that are present in the serum, like cow serum, when you actually culture cells that you need to include, that if you're not using any animal products, you then need to make synthetically. So you actually need to set up a cell-powered biologics factory, make these components called growth factors to help your sort of meat cells grow. And that's a very, very expensive process. Like these growth factors are enormously costly to produce. And to some extent, like that'll obviously get cheaper with scale. Still, that is going to be one of the main bottlenecks for scale for cultured meat. So something we have explored and done some experiments with partners and have some IP around is just using mRNA to encode growth factors. So just to have the cultured meat cells make those growth factors themselves. And mRNA manufacturing, as we've seen also with COVID vaccines, is extremely scalable and can be made extremely cheap. So that's one area where I do feel there's a lot of potential in a way, like actually very similar even to the Derek Rossi idea behind the Moderna story, like how to manipulate cells in cell culture and change the cell type and get them grow, grow faster. Yeah. Basically any biological process where you need to kind of manipulate production, you know, you could use mRNA to effectively do that, right? Yes, that's correct. And so you're focusing on these like emerging areas that big markets, like if you, if you figure something out there, then you can come out with a product that could help a lot of people. That's correct. You know, the normal startup advice is focus and do one thing really well. It seems like you guys are doing a bunch of different things. Is there something about biotech that like works better with like kind of broad set of parallel experiments as they take a long time to get through trials and stuff? I would say we are converging around like 98% on cancer currently. We've certainly gone through quite a lot of exploration on the way. It is like if you are an AI or a machine learning company that has built a better foundation model, <laughs> yeah. what do you apply it to? I think you, you need to do a lot of experiments to figure out where is the biggest unmet need, the highest value problem, and the most impactful problem you can solve. So that's kind of the journey we've gone through. And you know, I think both in terms of our personal passions and the long-term impact, closing this information loop in oncology is what we really fundamentally want to do. But there are other areas where we can enable others with the technologies that we've built on the way. So I do agree on the focus point, but also one has to switch between the exploration and exploitation modes. There's a place for both. This is probably like a little bit of a naive question. I always imagined, especially as a kid, that like we would solve cancer, like there'd be one solution and like all cancer would be solved. Is cancer like that or is it always going to be kind of like a whack-a-mole where you'll be like, oh, this type of cancer we can now do, but there's another 10,000 to go? There might be a silver bullet. There's at least a chance. There are certain targets in cancer that are fairly universal. We are exploring some of them. We, we are developing a vaccine candidate targeted against one of them. So I think it might be a finite set of things. 
not necessarily just one thing, but there might be a finite set of things. Then I think the point is also like at what point do you intervene? I mean, I mean, I, I think more broadly, like immune system is the silver bullet. The immune immune system can cure cancer clearly. It does so every day. Like like we we have cancer cells or precancerous cells constantly popping up in our bodies, and we don't get cancer all of us all the time. So it is successful at this. Does it fail because it's just a probability game? Like eventually something gets through. It's a probability game, so, and it's it's an evolutionary game. So the immune system puts evolutionary pressure on the precancerous cells. There's a set of steps they go through to then hide from the immune system to proliferate faster under that pressure. It evolves and then eventually it, it sort of reaches a complexity threshold where it can sort of have its runaway runaway velocity where the immune system can't keep up. And at that point, we obviously then need to, to help, help the immune system. I actually do think there is a finite set of universal targets in cancer that will be very powerful and hitting those targets is harder. One challenge there is that a lot of these universal cancer targets are also targets that would be present on healthy cells, although usually in lesser amounts. But the immune system has also evolved to avoid attacking ourselves. So that is one of the fundamental problems in cancer. Cancer is us, and the immune system doesn't want to attack it. There are these mechanisms called tolerance, where the immune system learns to avoid targets that are present on normal cells. And a lot of these universal cancer cell targets are in that category. But there are ways to break that and something we've actually been able to do recently, leveraging some LLM-based protein design tools to be able to overcome some of these self-tolerance effects. And we are now testing that. What does that mean? We are taking a target that is present on a cancer cell and also on a healthy cell. So if we just use that target by itself as a vaccine, we wouldn't generate a very strong immune response. But there's a way to redesign that target that we then deliver as mRNA in such a way that it sort of evades the self-tolerance issue. Is this like a fine-tuned LLM that like understands like proteins? Yeah, so LLMs are actually incredibly good now at generating protein designs. So for example, there's this open source meta-release model called ESM2 that was that was trained with 350 million protein sequences that sort of has actually, the remarkable thing there is that actually, even though it was not told anything about the structure of these proteins. It was not given any structural information. Just in the process of compressing that information and learning how to represent these proteins internally, it actually came up with the representation of structure and is now outperforming AlphaFold-like systems in being able to predict protein structure. And these kinds of models are also generative. You can essentially specify a set of properties that you want for your protein, and you can you can prompt it, prompt it with that and have it generate designs for you. So that's what we are leveraging for cancer vaccine design. I mean, you guys have been around since 2013, is that right? So this company was technically founded 2013 as an entity, I would say, like in its modern form, we go back to 2016. So that's kind of when I started. So I had this in the wilderness with a lot of help on the way early on, but then with Nikolai, we really converged on the current form. And how is the business model? Like, are you basically like, um, it's a technology driven company. So you're trying to like one day come to... I'm guessing. So you're trying to develop a technology that one day that could be worth a lot, but it's kind of binary outcome. Is it like, you know, either develop technology or you don't? We develop technology in order to develop products. Well, let's say 20 years to be conservative. We want to have a product out there that gets cancer deaths in the U.S. down to less than 10,000 a year. Wow. So like 10 to 20 year horizon is kind of what your um, development horizon is. Yeah. And today you raised a bunch of funding? We raised 48 million to date. So that's sort of now enough to get us to... Uh, transitioning to clinical stage, which is happening early next year. I mean, this is kind of one of those open master plan like things. So unpack the three steps. How do we, how do we get to cancer prevention? 
how do we build the company to do that? So we've talked about some of the core technologies we've developed. Those core technologies are valuable. And so we can generate some early revenue through licensing those technologies to others. As we then start developing actual cancer vaccines and other mRNA therapeutics, we actually don't necessarily have to take them all the way in the clinical development process. But once we get to phase one, phase two, we can license and partner them. And then they are sort of much higher value. Those are much higher value deals than technology licensing deals. And that then lets us bootstrap to a full stack biopharma company where we can run a very large, like five year, 40,000 patient cancer prevention trial. Then I think things become really, really interesting. So it is definitely a long-term game, but in terms of the impact, I think the timelines are actually pretty, pretty short. Sounds good. And so the game is basically in the short term, like develop patents and technology so you can license it out, which gives you the revenue you need. And products. To get to and products. Yeah, and products. Yeah, yeah, and products. Okay. How big is the team? We're 20 full-time people, 20 researchers, and then we have various support organizations where let's come up to about 13 FTEs altogether, primarily around like chemistry and manufacturing. And you have a lab or some kind of like physical facility? We have 20,000 square foot lab space in Seaport in Boston. I and a lot of people were very excited about mRNA COVID vaccine, but it didn't feel like it, it kind of delivered on the promise of giving you kind of long-term immunity. I guess, is that just something about COVID? It just mutates too much and there was no vaccine that would do it or is it related to mRNA? It is definitely not a mRNA property. It is really all about the speed of uh, SARS-CoV-2 evolution, which essentially the challenge is that you have this virus that has sort of the part that it uses to enter our cells. The spike protein is very, and specifically like the kind of tip of it, the so-called RBD, receptor binding domain, is very big and very flexible. So it can easily tolerate a lot of variability. So it actually mutates more slowly than the flu, but more of the mutations are viable. A sort of bioinformatician scientist called Trevor Bedford has run this analysis of what is the effective rate of evolution of SARS-CoV-2 compared to flu once you account for that. And it's actually four times faster than the flu. It's very fast. Now, what sort of happened is that we developed this first generation of vaccines without really taking this into account. And of course, this was a picture that, I mean, it was relatively predictable from the beginning, but obviously the picture became more clear over time. And the stopgap measure we have is that mRNA vaccines are also quick to update. Our update rate is still too slow. Like we are probably like one major variant behind usually with the updated vaccines. The other direction which has not really been taken yet, and we have done quite a bit of work on this, is actually trying to do a more highly multiplexed mRNA vaccine. So there's no reason why the mRNA vaccine has to deliver only one version of the spike protein or of the RBD. And indeed, like the booster, Moderna, the Moderna and Pfizer boosters last year were bivalent. So they had two, they had the original Wuhan spike and then the Omicron spike. The number two could be 20 or 40, especially with better mRNA. Could you even guess what feature variants might be? Machine learning is being used to, to try to predict regions where immune escape might happen. But actually, I mean, what's sort of showing up in preclinical experiments around these kinds of highly multiplex vaccines, which are also done sort of in non-mRNA fashion, although I think that'll be non-scalable in practice. But if you show the immune system enough versions of the spike protein, it actually generates more broadly in neutralizing antibodies. It's just like destroy everything that looks anything like this. Find all the common patterns in yeah. what you see and then go after that. We have the technology to solve this, actually. We just don't seem to have the will. There is a um, sort of a government attempt project called Project NextGen that is trying to be sort of a warp speed sequel. When you say the will is lacking, you just mean like 
it's kind of gone back to the default state, which takes like 10 to 15 years to go through clinical trials and et cetera? Not necessarily. It is definitely dead zone in terms of commercial investment. Not to be like anti-capitalist, but like the current state of the vaccine is great for capitalism. It's like every six months you need a new one. Like capitalism doesn't necessarily optimize towards like, has one vaccine never come back? No, that's, that's right. And the revenue numbers are really insane. Pfizer and BioNTech, I think, have now taken more of the market share, but even Moderna is still making many billions a year from the COVID boosters. So we do have the technology to make the last COVID vaccine. Just a question of whether the funding ecosystem supports it. Maybe the Project Next Gen is, is the best bet, but they, they also need seem to be spreading their bets across many different approaches, maybe too broadly, actually, in my, in my view. But at least some attempts are being made. But I think like long-term, it is unfortunate that this is where we've landed because there are issues like long COVID that will end up having, I think, a big, big impact on both individual happiness, productivity, and, and long-term, long-term chronic health conditions that feels like a bit of a ticking time bomb that we might all see the, realize the real impact of a few years down the line. We've ended up on a relatively non-deadly vaccine variant. I think if it mutated to something more deadly, we might regret not investing in a more generalized kind of solution. Most of the population has had vaccines or exposure that does help help a bit. It, it is still quite likely that we will see big evolutionary jumps like we did with Omicron. And the deadliness is complicated. It's a function of our immune response as well as the viral evolution. But I mean, we might might well see an Omicron-like event where you have like a very sudden, complete breakthrough through both vaccine and natural immune responses. And then, then everyone gets it. And even if the actual death rate or hospitalization rate is not that high, that will still have like a massive impact on, on the healthcare system like Omicron did. Do you have a take on whether, I guess, SARS-CoV-2 was bioengineered and, or maybe more broadly, like, where is kind of bioengineered weapons like heading based on like where technology is today? It seems hard to parse the SARS-CoV-2 origin story at this point. There's just too much fog around what happened. It's certainly possible that there was some kind of lab escape. I mean, it's striking that uh, the Wuhan, Wuhan Institute of Virology is in Wuhan and was, was engaged in, in coronavirus research. So, and lab escapes do happen. And there have been historical examples of those lab escapes causing outbreaks like 70s flu outbreak from a sort of a Soviet lab escape. So I don't know, I think, I think probably in this specifically in the case of SARS-CoV-2, it's like 50-50, hard to say, certainly not excluded by anything we know or strongly, strongly excluded. In terms of bioweapons, I think that is, that is a tricky question. I mean, we are, are certainly all the sort of exponential things about DNA synthesis and everything around that are definitely enabling capabilities with sort of small scale bad actors that are, that are quite worrying. There are some info hazards here that I don't even want to like, like say, say in a, in a podcast on what kinds of things are possible. But yeah, I, I think we will see engineered pathogens for sure. And one thing I've read is that it just doesn't take that many people to do it, right? Like this isn't necessarily like a, yeah, with nuclear weapons, you need like thousands of people involved, but this is like a smallish set of people that can make it happen. No, exactly. It, it, it's like a decently equipped molecular biology lab, 20 people, and then then like, or less, less actually, like like a, not, not, even, not even that many probably. But I mean, you need some, some baseline level of expertise. 
One concern I think people have expressed with some of the um, large language models now, like ChatGPT, is that they actually might, to some extent, democratize the expertise you 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 need to to generate some of the ideas. I think the actual practical lab work is still still challenging enough that there's there's a non-trivial barrier. But it could be individual terrorist organizations. It could be small bad actor rogue states. Those kinds of groups are definitely now capable of generating quite worrisome pathogens. And I think like one lesson also from COVID, I think, is that the pathogen doesn't necessarily even have to be lethal to disrupt. I think it can also be an economic weapon, disrupt supply chains, like impact people's productivity and decision making. And because of course, the challenge is that when you deploy a bioweapon, your own population typically is also vulnerable. Like, I mean, think theoretically, eventually we, we might be able to get into more targeted bioweapons, but that's still quite technically challenging. But if you were an actor like Russia, who just wants to create chaos and disruption, then you don't necessarily have to, to release a lethal, lethal thing. And maybe you can surreptitiously vaccinate your own population in advance also. Bioweapons might be the nukes together with, with AI. They might be the nukes of the 21st century and obviously very different, different fundamentally in nature. So I did recently write a novel draft where the scenario is that, not necessarily that I believe that this will 100% happen, but like a possible scenario for the next couple of decades is that we see increasingly frequent waves of both zoonotic pandemics and, and then human-made engineered pathogens of, of like increasingly bizarre variety. When it gets to the point where to actually live a normal life, the countermeasure has to be an mRNA wearable. So you actually have a microfluidic chip that you wear that is able to, to get just digital information, synthesize an mRNA vaccine in situ, and then update your immune system in real time. So, so there's like these continuous software patches for your immune system that are going to get rolled out continuously. That sort of becomes also a useful delivery method for other therapeutics and vaccines. But if we want to really build the global immune system, whether it's sort of that form factor, but, but I, mean, I think we do need to figure out how to get much better at defense. People often talk about how um, you know, bioweapons are asymmetric. The attacker has an advantage. That is true to some extent, but we also have a defender advantage in terms of our immune systems. Our immune systems are pretty good at dealing with new pathogens if enhanced with things like mRNA vaccines. So we just need to get much better at deployment and development part of it. What other applications are there for mRNA that you think is going to, you know, it's gonna, how is it going to change society 20 years from now? You know, apart from the ones that you're working on, the cancer, the, you know, the cultured meat, what else do you think is going to change with mRNA? So a useful framework that Nikolai and I have converged on is to think, to really think, let's think about this as a kind of Carlson curve or an exponential curve. And I'm actually calling it Eroshenko curve after Nikolai, because he, he came up with this. What is the quantity that will grow exponentially? Let's say it's sort of the amount of mRNA or, or the sort of number of base pairs of genetic information that we can safely deliver into the body. So the size of the exogenome, if you like, in terms of base pairs. So let's imagine that sort of going up exponentially. So right now, we are sort of at the one kilobase scale of exogenome, roughly. We can take one protein, we can take one thing like a spike protein, and we can turn that into mRNA and put it in. Or, you know, we can replace one enzyme or, or something like that, one missing thing, or put in one new thing. Things will look very interesting if we get to one megabase. So I think in 10 years, and this is not necessarily like global deployment, but like what is, what is possible and what is, what is in the clinic. So 1 million base pairs equivalent of genetic information delivered as mRNA. That might look like a pan-virus vaccine, for example. One shot, immunity against all respiratory viruses, all like common colds, everything. It might look like a preventative cancer vaccine. 
So obviously something we are, are working on directly, but like something that is broad enough to cover all likely cancer mutations. So that's kind of the megabase, megabase scale. 20 years after that, I think we get to gigabase scale. That might look like taking all the receptors in someone's immune cells and delivering those as mRNA. So like a synthetic immunome, like a complete immune profile of someone. That then gets you to dealing with autoimmune diseases, that there's sort of healthy aging phenotypes. Wait, so could you take like a mature adult's immune system and inject it into like a baby so they could be immune to every single thing that adult is? Yes. And not necessarily like like a specific mature adult, but like what is the optimal immune profile? Like every mature, the maturest adult. <laughs> like an AI synthesized version of like what the perfect human immune system should look like. Wow. So that's the kind of scale where we, I think we can get to in 20 years, 30 years, we can get to one terabase, 100 billion, billion base pairs of genetic information. Then I think we might move out of the realm of mRNA. But to give you an indication of what that scale means, that's like our entire microbiome. Human genome is three gigabases. The human microbiome is actually 100 gigabases. So our microbiome has more genetic information that, than the mammalian part, part of us. So at the terabase scale, we can get to a fully synthetic microbiome. So we could take the perfect microbiome and duplicate that. Now we have perfect metabolism, or, or we can metabolize things that we can't currently metabolize. If you want to like eat, eat cellulose and digest cellulose, that becomes possible. We're going to be eating grass and trees, yeah. Yeah. This is like the idea to your next book here, Hanu. <laughs> <laughs> can we get wings now? I want wings. If you really want wings, like a functional wings that you are, are controlled by your nervous system. Yeah, yeah, I want to fly. I don't want them to just look good. Right. The easier way to do that rather than just sort of actually grow them, because I think like the issue, there's, there's also like you would have to completely remake your skeleton, et cetera, to be able to biomechanically support that. But I think that the easier way to do that would be to have synthetic prosthetic wings or perhaps like lab grown wings. And then we tolerize your body to it. I think one actually a huge application area we didn't talk about yet for mRNA vaccines is sort of the opposite of generating an immune response against something. It's actually marking something as self. So, so that's a very rapidly developing area of like using mRNA, mRNA sort of anti-vaccines essentially to like tune down your immune responses for autoimmune diseases. But a very similar application is telling your body not to reject something foreign. So that would then enable you to engraft biomechanical wings or a prosthetic or, you know, like a pig organ, which is something that people are obviously also actively working on now. But I think like the route to wings is through cyborg wings, where there's an mRNA layer to help you not reject the engraftment of those wings. I want to go back to your 10, 20, 30 year thing. So what's like the 50 year thing, if we just skip to the end? After the synthetic microbiome, yeah, so that was terabase scale. So like 20, 40, 20, 50. Then we get to petabase scale. So 10 to the 15 basis of genetic information. We now know that in the brain, there are between 3,000 and 5,000 different cell types. There was a new sort of major study that just came out. So the brain actually has, has quite a lot of diversity. Each neuron firing, we often think of the brain as just the connectome, like this neuron neurons connected to each other, but each neuron is a very complex machine. And as we have now just learned, there's like three to 5,000 different types of cells in the brain. So the brain state or something like a memory is probably defined, not just the connectome, not the connect, just the connections between neurons, but also like the state of the individual neurons and the distribution of different cell types in the brain. So at petabase scale, we can clone that. So we can then actually clone someone else's brain state at a molecular level in your brain. Maybe you, you can actually download, literally download memories 
or really fully feel what it feels like to be to be someone else, or certainly do very radical radical AI brain computer interfaces. Is memory actually stored as a series of kind of cell shapes and proteins? There are some really striking observations that are are sort of coming out about how the brain stores information. Like one thing that really blew my mind recently is that in a way, viruses are sort of the natural exogenome. A lot of our genes are actually repurposed ancient viruses that have come from elsewhere. A really major one in the brain is called ARC1. It's basically a virus that has become part of our own genome. It's still able to make viral particles in the brain that package mRNA from neurons and transmit that mRNA to other neurons. And we don't really know what it does, but if it's knocked out in mice, those mice can't form new memories. Oh, interesting. So maybe memory is mRNA. Maybe it is. I mean, or, or, or certainly there are more complex biological mechanisms than just like the connections between neurons that are, that are reinforced. But my point is that like, if we imagine sort of the, the amount of genetic material that we would need to deliver to, to duplicate these patterns or the amount of genetic information, then I think petabase scale, I think gets us to actually duplicating all those patterns, patterns in the brain. What comes after peta pico? Is that what's after peta? Exa. Exa. Right. Exa. Depending on how you count, the total genomic information on Earth is about an exabase. This becomes a little harder to visualize, but like imagine this is like now like a post-human form of homo exabasis where each individual has access to an entire planetary ecosystem's worth of genetic information at will. That's when you get your wings, you get multiple bodies, you become an ecosystem, essentially, that can morph and adapt to different environments and, yeah, maybe exist on the same kinds of timescales that planetary ecosystems do. It feels hard to imagine that's 50 years away. That is not necessarily 50 years away. <laughs> Certainly not the practical applications of it. But this is kind of the thing about exponentials. They hit you surprisingly quickly. My argument is that like the mRNA is an exponential technology. It is driven by exactly the same forces that are driving other exponential technologies. It is directly driven by Moore's law. DNA synthesis uses the same lithography and microarray printing technologies. DNA sequencing is, is an exponential technology for the same reasons. And the, the sort of amount of genetic data available to us that can drive things like protein design is growing exponentially. And then, then we add the AI layer to that for the design. I would be very surprised if like the Eroshenko curve of like the size of our external genome is not an exponential. So at some point it'll blow up and the timescales, whether it's a few decades or for even a century off, doesn't matter that much in the same way that is the case with AI. It sounds like you think it also impact longevity quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. They are probably the most promising approach to radical longevity extension or health span extension is this idea of cellular rejuvenation or reprogramming. There are a number of companies working on that, companies like Altus Labs, like a 3 billion Jeff Bezos-backed new effort, as many others, New Limits, that's Blake Byers and Brian Armstrong, kind of an earlier stage company. But the common to these efforts is the idea that if you use these same factors that we use to turn our normal cells into stem cell-like states, but transiently for a little while, that can actually rejuvenate our cells. And mRNA is absolutely the perfect vehicle to accomplish that. So longevity is definitely definitely in the cards. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. We could talk forever, Hanu, but this is super, super interesting as it is. Really appreciate you kind of taking the time and walking us through not just what your company is doing, but like a real science lesson in mRNA and the future. Well, Hanu is an amazing book writer. He wrote The Quantum Thief and The Fractal Prince, which I didn't even realize that he wrote them until this conversation, but they're both great books and he's got four out there with one coming up. I can't wait to read them, yeah. 
I can tell why you're a great sci-fi writer. I mean, you have all these great ideas. You're able to connect the technology to like the applications really well and understand how the technology is going to evolve to change the applications. So that's really exciting. No, thank you. I appreciate that. One important thing about writing and reading, reading science fiction is that it's sort of easy to think about the impact of technology in sort of abstract context. But if you actually sit down and try to imagine a world where people are using this technology every day and actually touching it and feeling it and interacting with it, you sort of vividly bring that scenario to life in, in your mind, which I think best science fiction does really well, then you usually notice things about it that you would not otherwise, like you actually understand the human dimensions much better. Yeah, makes sense. That's why you, you write great books and make good companies. <laughs> All right, we better wrap up. Thanks, Anu. Thank you so much.